from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. Continuing our conversation from last week, Ian Cameron, known for his work with Rolls-Royce, and Verena Clues, known for her work directing BMW's design works, joined Bill and me to discuss cars that matter. But before we get into the history of cars, Bill had an important question about a different history. So here you had Ian, who's developing back in the early 2000s, the new Phantom Rolls-Royce, and Verena was involved with design works and especially with some relationships with BMW. You guys are married. You've been together for a while. Tell us about the office romance. Oh, well, ah. <laughs> it was 8.30 in the evening, and she had... <laughs> no, and I, I was always referring to him as the corporate weirdo. Can you believe it? And this attracted you to her? Well, No, uh, I told him afterwards. Yep. Yeah. I, it broke my heart, and I thought, well, this life's got to be better than that. So I had another go, and so no, how, how he, did you he get actually, together? Really? Actually, no, it started because you know what the magic words are to start a. Yeah, and he was always he was always so serious. And never I, was I really don't. Grumpy, I need to know the magic guy. <laughs> I I told her she was dangerous. No, she he said, was. You were dangerous? referring. No, you were referring to somebody who had said it. He had never and said I it. I was made completely it up. confused. How could he know that person <laughs> who I had met in Italy during my ten years at Mercedes-Benz? So and that was somehow. And then he started to smile, and I was so surprised that he even can smile. Uh, the hook was in. The hook yeah. was in, Bill. So he had a reputation of being a real son of a bitch. Yeah, grumpy. What? So how did, how did you get together? Was it a political challenge within the group? Yes. Because... No, not really. There are so many... Oh, no, I see. We, we agree on everything, no, as you no, can no, tell. No, 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 no. Honestly, so I think we laid it open or mm. made it public pretty quickly. But BMW is a place where so many relationships are going on. It's not a place like other companies where it's completely forbidden to look at your neighbor or anything like that. Did you fall in love with his design sensibilities? No. Or was it his... With him. Oh. It was him. <laughs> uh, we want details. There has to be something that I must add to relationships within BMW. It's only having reached retirement age and left BMW, there's nothing more beautiful than hindsight. And I'm still in touch with certain former colleagues, etc., people who love engines and old motor cars, etc., etc. And you start to discover interests and affinities which were never visible during more than 20 years of working together. And this is one of the criticisms I have of such an environment. Team building, real team building, where people form relationships and loyalties, which may appear to be perhaps against upper management. I don't know. With enlightenment, I refuse to work with people I don't enjoy working with because you do it with your heart and soul. It's such a pain. And if you do, and if you discover these affinities and interests, you up the output and the commitment. And that's exactly what an environment, an umbrella like BMW should allow, encourage, and make use of. 
And this this is not the case. Whether it's a German cultural thing, is a fear of true team building or teams becoming too strong and threatening or disturbing the modus operandi, I don't know. But this happened above and beyond that. As Verena says, office relationships in this day and age... They can get sticky. They can get sticky, but there's such a pressure of work and not doing anything else. You know, there's this insidious thing of you, going to the unions, you're only allowed to work so many hours a day, let's say from... Eight to five. Eight to five, full stop, and you go home, relax, you sleep a certain number of hours, you come back and start working. There has to be this gap in between. Then they say... Well, you should have a laptop, you know, just more flexible. You can walk around with it. And guess what? You can take it home at weekends. Ah, but you're not meant to do work. And you're not meant to write. But, of course, humans are weak assemblies of cells. And this is what you do. It, it takes more and more of your time. This is all fine. But sometimes there has to be a downtime. And now we come to the question of autonomous driving. What you do with this supposed downtime when you're being driven autonomously, there will be no downtime. You can also work on the problems when you're there. And slowly, any creativity you have left in your brain, the room is gone, the oxygen's gone, and you just shrivel up. How long have you been together? About 50 years, I think. Uh, uh, which is not bad, considering you're both 35. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and, and oh, 12 years. So no, 13. 13. You fool. I like it, you fool. <laughs> <laughs> Time flies and when you're having fun. I know, but how, I know how that is. And the yeah. mutual respect is, 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 a, is wonderful. Shall we move on? Yes, please. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing some of those intimate aspects of yeah. what it's really like behind the curtain of a designer's home. <laughs> really, I, I always marvel that uh, two people engaged in the same professional and creative endeavors can somehow actually live under the same roof. And I think it's a testament to your uh, patience and skill and maturity and vision that you're able to, in fact, do that. Because usually they end up at one another's throats. They, they can do. They, well, that can be healthy. But I, I, I have to say, I will say something is a great compliment, an example of my respect for her professional skills. In spite of the fact that we typically speak English together, not German, she has a magical way with words, which I may have referred to some elsewhere, where it's not the words she uses so much as the words she doesn't use, which makes a point and that in a foreign language is quite a talent. And it's related to her love of materials, color, textures. That in itself is a very expressive medium. And that's something that she has in spade loads. Well, you're a painter, Verena. And it's yeah, very yes. special. When I stepped out of BMW, I decided to have my own art studio, what I have since 2015. And I started to paint. I mean, I did photography for, for a while or for a long time. And I had started to do smaller paintings on my kitchen counter already here in, in Malibu. But then I thought that's now a, a good moment to start to paint bigger. <laughs> and I'm getting slowly bigger and bigger. And the exhibitions are getting bigger and bigger. So it's good. But it's a completely different enterprise experience compared to being a car designer or a creative leader in the automotive world, whereas the automotive world is so fact-driven, so dense in information and data and aspects. The world of art is somehow very opaque, what people call it when they say it politely. <laughs> it's a very opaque enterprise. But I decided for myself, I just continue to paint, to express myself in the various media, and then we see where it goes. Well, we'll be right back. 
Hey, this is Chris and Jenny from When Last I Left, another Kurt Co. Media podcast. And we have some awesome news for you. Super exciting. If you're anything like me, gift giving can be kind of difficult this time of year. I'm not like you. No, you're not. I'm really great at giving She's gifts. She's much better at giving you gifts. You want to know why? Why? I go to vicesreserve.com. Vicesreserve.com. It's the perfect place to get unique curated gifts that don't suck. Like cocktail kits, oh, cool, cool gadgets, oh, yeah. really great liquor. Mm-hmm. They don't stop there, though. They don't. If you use the code PODCASTVIP, you get an extra 15% off everything. In the store. Everything is 15% off with the code podcast VIP. Everything at vicesreserve.com. That's insane. You should go now. I'm going to go as soon as I finish listening to this episode. Cool. Buy me something. I will. Like I've said before on this program, cars that matter is as much about the people who drive them as the cars themselves. But now that we've gotten to know them a little better, Ian, uh, we've talked about some significant automotive designs from the past, and I'd like to kind of get into your head, find out what some of those things are. Are they production cars? Are they concept cars? Where do we start? Well, I think that where we start are the cars we love, obviously. But if we think of it in a, in a broader sense of the industry and what influence and what changes they may have brought to people's lives... I think you'll almost certainly end up focusing on mass-produced cars, cars that we can see every day or really were available to normal people, uh, not just dream cars and supercars. Does the fact that a car might have been made in millions and millions of units make it a significant design? Not necessarily, but usually. Certainly there have been some mass-produced or examples of mass-produced cars and brands which have never touched my heart. I can start to name some, and it's it's always puzzling to me. But a part of the attraction will always be nostalgia. Nostalgia obviously goes back to the past and brings us up to whether the products today are still reflecting that or not. If you think of the cars that we see and people like to collect, that is certainly one angle to take. But the other one is, yeah, simply the mass produce. Why was it produced in such numbers? Why did they succeed? And maybe in the meantime, they've disappeared but they are significant. Well, let's start with one. I don't know. I'm trying to go through my head in alphabetical order because that's what I do. Um, I don't, you're that methodical? You're going to do, I do this in alphabetical it, it, yes, order? Yes. When he, insta- can't, when when he can't, can't sleep. When he yeah. can't sleep, then he I tries to give him exercises I, like I, that. Oh, yeah. of course. I don't count sheep. I try to, to name airports, name airplanes, name cars or companies in alphabetical order or wheel size or... Well, then I'll, then I'll bet you start with something. Uh, if it's not Abarth, I'll bet it's Alpha. Alfa Romeo, yes, is, <laughs> is a brand very close to my heart. I've had a number of Alphas, and I think if we think of the sort of post-war Alphas, the Julias and Juliettas, this was a, a, a mega pre-war star. They produced cars that were the most phenomenal racing cars, also for the road. And after the Second World War, they started their mass production program, which brought cars to, you know, these jewels were available to the normal working man. An outstanding example to me was the Bertone, uh, the Sprint, the Coupes. The Absolutely. Six, oh, the Sprints were fantastic. Absolutely Little wonderful. fastbacks with the... Oh. And in fact, the, the first Bertone car was... What had happened is the Giulietta, which had been promised, typically was late. And the public were getting more and more frustrated. This was our diversion, maybe a, an early example of spin to quiet the frustration that was there. And they asked Bertone to produce a design, which turned out to be... Absolutely beautiful. 
And of course, that car evolved into some exquisite sort of outliers like the SS that was Scaglioni's car, is that right? Yeah, also Scaglioni. So was the Julia. Yeah, yeah. Scaglioni was the in-house designer then in Bertone, and absolutely wonderful. A mercurial and very eccentric and truly unique designer. They're not allowed to exist anymore, unfortunately. Apparently not. No. What comes next in your uh, pantheon of greats? BMC, a company that's disappeared uh, long ago, yes, British but, Motor uh, Corporation. Alex's car is not. Yeah. Not so well known on this side of the of the ocean. BMC was British Motor Corporation, a conglomeration of brands such as Austin, Morris, Wolseley, Riley. BMW acquired the rights to quite a few of them. Riley, Triumph, when they had Rover as part of the group, ah, right. they still have the rights to those brands. One of the models that really stuck within the BMC era was the Mini, which obviously was indeed revived by BMW and now is part of the BMW group. But Mini was an unbelievably clever little package by Alec Isigonis, the engineer. A real giant killer on the road track where you had these races, saloon car races with the Mini running circles around things like Falcons and Galaxies and Jaguars. The size of the engine of the Mini was maybe the size of the starter motor of the Falcon, but anyway. (laughs) But um, the the truth about the Mini was that it never did anything but lose money. It always lost money. Is that right? Yeah. So moving through your alphabet back in the 50s. Perhaps one must consider Citroën, another company with huge history of innovative products. I think the one that everybody always goes to, although there were many others, were the DS. I mean, the DS somehow was a shock when it appeared and simply put... Citroen on a pedestal that nobody would ever forget. My favorite auto writer, LJK Setright, regarded that as the greatest automotive design in history in terms of its being a really kind of game-changing automobile. I mean, the shape alone, it was barely automotive. You know, it was like a spaceship. Well, the French will do that. I mean, you know, what what amazes me, you know, you designers, okay, you know, the German designers, the British designers, American designers, Japanese designers, they all design, say, a door handle for a car. And it'll look different one from the other, but they'll all look like door handles. A French designer can design a door handle, and it'll like be on the roof and look like a shoe. They're, they have a whole different design language, a whole different way of conceptualizing solutions. Yes, I would say there's not a lot that falls naturally to the eye as beauty in the eye of the beholder in French automotive products. Significant cars, what's next? Ford. Specifically, what Ford are you talking about? Well, there's so many of them, and I think naturally everybody would pick the Model T. I respect that and recognize that, but the car that changed the ball game for me in Ford was the Mustang. It's such a simple, essential, clever car. The engi- Every engineering on Ford is clever. It's minimalistic. They don't spend a penny where it doesn't have to be spent. Always when a Mustang goes by, I have to stop and look. Well, you actually not only stopped and looked, you stopped and bought one, didn't you? You have a 66? A 66, yes, which um, is grown so much into our hearts, we can't possibly sensibly move it on and do something else, but it's an extraordinary car. I'm also convinced in the meantime what we have is a notchback, not the fastback, and there's certain aspects of that car which I believe influenced the exterior designer who was from Design Works, so based here. There are certain proportions, I can see the stance in the Phantom. Very interesting. Which he has neither confirmed nor denied, only smiled about. What is very different is, whereas the Phantom, in a very British way, tucks in the proportions of its tail into a little sort of, unlike Gandini cars, which always have substantial butts, an American car and the Mustang in particular does not taper to the back. It's wide and bright and bold. 
And that's the statement it makes. All right, moving on. Jaguar as a Brit. Would you say that again, just so you can teach us how to say it, pronounce Brit- the name? Jaguar. Thank you. Jaguar. Okay, Jaguar. Which is um, Jaguar. very close to my heart. But certainly the car I would have to mention is the, or the car I love, is the mm. E-Type Coupe. You know, their claim to fame, apart from the styling, was the affordable prices. The price at which they could produce and deliver these things was quite extraordinary. And suddenly with the E-Type, you had sort of racing D-Type aerodynamics for the racetrack brought onto the high street at a price that everyone could afford. Outperform any Aston Martin of the day at uh, yeah. literally uh, less than half the price. What's next in a brand? Jaguar Lamborghini. The story of Lamborghini started out of frustration of a tractor producer owning a Lamborghini who got fed up with his Ferrari and its endless problems and decided he was simply going to produce a car that was better. Except when you're backing up. Yeah, (laughs) except when you're backing up. And with his second model, the first model, the 350 and the 400 were phenomenal anyway by the same designer as who had done the Alpha we mentioned before, the Giulietta. Scaglioni had done that first design. But with the mirror, all stops were pulled out. And these three young hotshot engineers, Delara Stanzani and Bob Wallace, were literally yeah. given free reign to produce this incredible piece of sculpture. And that, I think, is the only, and certainly the last, if not the only time that's happened, would never happen today. The world is simply too complicated, too mistrusting. It just stands out as an example of initiative, endeavor, trust, and success. Robert, would it be inappropriate for you to talk a little about your car? And uh, We were all very proud of you bringing it up oh. to Pebble, and what a beautiful piece of sculpture you had. You know, the Mira is uh, certainly the statement car, not only for Lamborghini, but maybe even for that decade in the supercars, yeah. Uh, it really was Followed the beginning. Followed by the Countach, yeah, and another... Two, yeah. two slam dunks, and... Uh, <laughs> Both by the same guy. I mean, it's probably now time to get on bended knee and take off my hat and bow to Marcello Gandini. What he created was really a remarkable portfolio of designs that I think affected all of us in many, many ways, both emotionally and I suspect a lot of designers professionally. And one of the most modest guys I've ever met and yet did so much when he pinned the mirror. Absolutely. Robert, we're going to have to spend a minute talking about my favorite brand, I can't help it. You know that you almost never see my garage without one of these puppies in there. Would this Uh, be Maserati? No, actually. But we will get back in just a minute and we'll talk about it. I was introduced to Stefano Ricci decades ago, and I was enamored of his creations then, and just as impressed now, Stefano Ricci is about style that matters because it lasts the design, the craftsmanship, uh, everything about everything he does is uh, made to endure. We're uh, back with Ian Cameron and Verena Close. What comes after Lamborghini? Mercedes-Benz is a brand you can't avoid. Mercedes-Benz is one of the most outstanding automotive producers in terms of quality of bodywork, engineering, technology, absolutely phenomenal. But... There's one model to my mind which changed the ball game for them, and this was not even a model, an event. When the 300 SL uh, right. won the Millimilia in record time with Sterling Moss and Jenkins, it was absolutely fixed in history, and since then that model has changed the ballpark for Mercedes-Benz. The grill, the aesthetics, everything relates back to the SL. 
And it's still the gold standard for collectors. I mean, if you have a Gullwing or even an SL Roadster in the garage, you've kind of got... The Roadster, to my mind, is even nicer than Mm -hmm. the Gullwing, apart from being a better car to drive. But if you take all of the SLs, the Pagoda from the 60s is the one that stands out, that has this phenomenal proportion, stance. Gorgeous little things. It's very noble, utterly noble. I can never take my eye off one. You don't see many any longer. Actually, they have disappeared for a bit, but they seem to be coming back now. People are collecting them, I think, or restoring them, spending money on them. There were some beautiful ones up at Pebble Beach and Quail just recently. And it is interesting how one model has the influence it's had on the image of the rest of the brand. It's really One event, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Which was the Millimilia. Verena, one of the most iconic competitions of brand in the U.S. was Coke and Pepsi. One of the most iconic competitions in the automotive market has got to be BMW and Mercedes. I was wondering, as a designer, and I know that you've worked with both, if you could talk a little about the sensibility that they brought to the road and how you saw them different. That's a very interesting question. (laughs) Uh, First of all, I think that kind of competition is very good. It's good for the marketplace, good for the consumer. Having worked for both, and I have to say, when I left Mercedes-Benz in 2004 to head over to run DesignWorks USA, it was a very hard and tough decision because I really had fallen in love with Mercedes-Benz, with the company, the people, the products we had been developing, and of course, the studio I was running. The studio was based in beautiful Lake Como in an old villa, a studio which was fully dedicated to interior design materials and with full freedom to work with the Italian companies, suppliers. So it was like a for somebody who loves colors and materials, it was kind of a lush heaven <laughs> to, wor- to work there. And then surrounded by great fashion houses going here and there to the fashion shows. There was a moment in time when I understood what does it mean made in Italy? And <laughs> I always said and referred when when people came to the studio, uh, but what is the Italian secret? It's somehow Italians are born with taste and style. So anyway, so I... <laughs> <laughs> well, then what I enticed started, you out yeah, to California? I started, I started to look at BMW because they somehow appeared faster, speedier to me. And... When I met with people from BMW, I was pretty much impressed how in-depth research was done for every new project and every new product. And I thought, yeah, that will be a good learning curve for myself. And definitely then running DesignWorks USA, I was inspired by the idea also to work outside the automotive industry. So that was my motivation. Certainly, for those of us who were driving your cars back then, Between BMW and Mercedes, BMW was a little more of a driver's car, a little more of a feel for the road, a tighter suspension, a tighter drivetrain, tighter steering. And you knew that you were driving a car and you took it seriously. Mercedes was really all at that time about the build quality. They've both maintained a little of that 
soul going forward. Definitely the eye on detail, the eye on design in Mercedes-Benz versus the tight-sitting driving suit, so to speak. When you get into the car, you described it before as a little bit snug. And I learned that BMWs drive differently, much more towards driver orientation. And it's also what I learned The BMW customer, they know so much more in detail about their cars. They are much more technology savvy, so to speak. I had one of the SLs where I had a little crane on the ceiling of my garage. For the hardtop. For the hardtop. The hardtop didn't fold down like the sophisticated models of today. You actually had to lift it, it up, up and you either had a couple of friends with you to help you do it or, like some people I know, drop it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, having that crane with a hardtop hanging in your garage was always an interesting experience. Started with so, a little pagoda. Yeah. Yes, I did, I did. I actually acquired a 1969 Pagoda here in Southern California and then shipped it to Germany. And I love my car. I didn't realize you had a Pagoda now. Of what, course. What do you have, a 280 or a 50 or 30? 280. Oh, the last of the Mohicans. What a uh, great <laughs> thing. And manual shift, not only. Oh, manual. yes, that's a real rare bird. Mercedes-Benz, you can have too many of the models and mostly more the older ones. You can have more kind of irrational love affair with the car. It's more romantic. Ian phrased it nostalgia, but for me it's more romantic. And mm -hmm. somehow when you drive in the pagoda and you sit on these cushiony white seats, for me it's fine just to cruise and into the nice sunset. So it's, it's like immediately releasing dreams and romanticism. You marvel at how car design used to get done. Those of us who aren't designers like myself imagine that these things start as cocktail napkin imaginings, but the fact of the matter is you might end up with focus groups and committees and boards of directors that can uh, stifle the most promising design before it's even born. By this conversation, you can see that sometimes a special design gets through and makes a difference. It does, it does still, but it should be the rule and not the exception. We shouldn't take it for granted, which is to say you cannot expect that every car you produce is a beauty and it's going to be a success. But this is what the industry expects, which is beyond reason. The worst things that developed from my point of view were the three bugbears, and Verena will tell me, don't get him started. Shareholder value, which reduces everything to a balance sheet and the results this year and what you can tell the shareholders. It takes away long-term view, long-term commitment. The second thing is compliance. Compliance is a cop-out. Compliance is writing a formula to make sure people, if they're caught, they'll be prosecuted. That isn't why you should not do something, because you might be caught. You shouldn't do it because it's simply not good manners, not good morals, not the thing to do, it's not fair, it's not honest, it's not correct. What you have to do is manage these things. And compliance is not managing. It's a cop-out that you can't sue me or you can't say, I didn't tell you. But what it does is it dumbs everything down. And the third thing is pressure of time. Time is money, is do everything faster. And technology allows you to create things faster. What it doesn't do is allow you to understand, absorb, and take things in any faster. You know, if you watch three films fast forward in the night, you're not going to be any wiser than watching one film slowly at the proper speed. What you do is try to speed things up without the comprehension. So everything becomes superficial. And then you wonder, why is design stagnating? Why does everything look the same? It's just a formula for disaster. 
I'm curious as to how you see the market going forward design-wise for the automobile with all the noise about Uber and Lyft. Both of you, what does the next 20 years look like for the luxury automobile? I like that question. There was someone who said an engineer didn't know what was happening in the next five years let alone what's happening in the next 10, 15. But your job is to know what's going to happen. Well, I don't know what's going to happen. For sure, the planet's got a problem, and there's certain things we need to address, but we need to address them honestly. I have a great issue with the whole electric selling point that this is green. It is not green. This is a lie. The fact is, at the moment, the technology we have and the means and materials that we have, we could not all be driving electric vehicles. We could not supply and make the batteries. We could not supply and make the vehicles, etc. So the materials are simply not there, the charging is not there, and the source of electricity is neither there nor clean. Let me push back for just a minute. We have another podcast called Politics, Meet Me in the Middle. Oh, yes. And we had one of our local state senators on, and he talked about how in California, we're down to 14% of our power structure is fossil fuels. And the majority of it now is wind, solar, and water. And at the same time, what prevents someone who has an electric car from putting solar panels on their roof to charge it? But California is not the world. If we take a global view... How do you maintain an electric vehicle fleet in Berlin? Yes. You park uh, on the street in the snow sideways. You can't even... Nobody has a garage. You know, just just as an example, at the moment, Europe is sweltering under unusually California-like weather. And standard offices, studios, whatever you want to think of in Germany, they are not allowed to have air conditioning. Kill me because now. It would, it would collapse. The, the, the uh, infrastructure, the power cannot, grid's yeah, not there. It's not there. Sure, we have to achieve change, and this can't come quickly enough, but it needs to be done on an honest basis. So what are some of the things? Hydrogen? Uh, what, what, uh... That's definitely a, a, an alternative, but it's also complicated. It's, it's extremely difficult to store, etc., etc. But this should be driven by technology and not by politics. And mm-hmm. in this day and Good age, luck. it is, yes. But there's a few things that feel stranger than showing up at a restaurant with a table for eight going out into the valet at the end of the evening and realizing the carbon footprint that you have exhausted. Having your friends come to dinner is eight cars making essentially the same trip. We've got to get a little better in our planning. The whole idea of Uber and the Lyft is, are we moving forward as passengers in transportation or are we drivers? Ownership is still a big part of the equation for me. The pleasure of owning something and the experience of wanting to, being involved in it, being connected with it is quite different to being a passive passenger in a taxi or a product which belongs to someone else. These are all huge questions in terms of how we see mobility, ownership, usage in the future. And this is true what you're saying about the carbon footprint, no doubt. But the other side of that coin is the aspect of convenience. Convenience is one of the biggest drivers of what we do. It's also really a poison chalice because we become more and more passive. For me, the whole Uber experience and just depending on other people to move us around or pods which come and pick us up, we come to do less and less and less. All we do is use our thumbs at the end of the day. It's definitely proven the lesser we do with our three-dimensional capacities. When you drive, you have to look ahead. You have to look in the distance. You have to look around you and you have to maneuver your car. And if you give up on this, you give up a lot of capabilities of yourself, of your your brain. What you're both saying, though, is that you, going forward, hope to continue to design for the front seat. 
more than the back. I would like to. I enjoy driving. I love driving. I love motor cars. But whether they're motor cars which have electrical or internal combustion propulsion, I don't know. This is a different question. The other issue which is sure is as a new mode of transport, electrification or electric vehicle must be different. It must appeal in a different way. That will make me or the customer change from one thing that he's used to to something that is new. It's just the appeal of that product. At the moment, they all mimic a product that we're familiar with. If you look at a Tesla, I can't tell that that must be an electric vehicle. To Ian's point and Verena's about the whole notion of driving, this program is called Cars That Matter. And cars that matter are cars that you get behind the wheel of and that you actually have a relationship with. Absolutely. And, uh, exactly. Whether it's a Jag E-Type or a brand new electric Porsche Taycan, I suspect that there's an opportunity to have a relationship with both. But you're uh, right, Ian, until electric cars become interesting... I'm not interested. Well, there's a kind of a feeling when you're behind the wheel of a well-designed car that's pretty much indescribable. I think we just have a problem in that there's a whole generation of people who haven't even experienced that. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, it's pretty much clear we all hate to be behind the steering wheel and sitting in a a stow or a traffic jam and just waiting. What was that first? The stow? Stow. It's a German German. You have traffic in in, uh, Berlin? We have a lot of traffic traffic in Berlin, (coughs) Munich, and you sit for hours in a stow. And then, of course, you would love to beam yourself away. And that is somehow this beaming away, the idea of autonomous driving. But what else would you do there? Maybe you would read a book? I doubt it. You'd you probably won't. shop and buy some useless exactly. stupid no, stuff. You, you don't need. Sorry, you would but be you would bombarded, listen to bombarded cars by ma- advertisement. You would listen <laughs> to Cars That Matter or other similar podcasts <laughs> or, or on a well-designed stereo. Yeah. Fair enough, but <laughs> nothing else. <laughs> So as you go forward, these changes in society, are you designing for them? Yeah. (laughs) You have to. So when we say designing, I can speak for myself and I hope that all my fellow colleagues are doing the same. My ambition was always to do something what makes a life and world better for future consumers. There you go. And when I say so, it doesn't mean not always to produce more products, to produce more variety, make the world better. That means to anticipate what will be better by then, five years, ten years ahead. The cell companies, Verizon and AT&T, are all touting about the 5G coming and how that is going to change all of the products that we use, whether in an automobile... The products change in our brainwaves. Yeah. Yeah. I don't change know. Change our brainwaves. Yeah. Uh, that will probably because, be yeah. controlled pretty soon. Tell me, how is that communication style affecting your designs? The fact that every product that you make going forward is going to be able to talk to every other product you make going forward. One of the realities of what you're talking about is the complexity. And this is why you'll suddenly say, not suddenly, it's been going on for some time, Certainly in the automotive world, people, manufacturers, realize they can't do it themselves. First of all, there's a huge mismatch between the development cycle of a vehicle and the development cycle of electronic products. They end every week, would seem to be, whereas you need to shut things down. This is what we will produce and deliver in three years' time. This doesn't work. But I have a huge problem with the complexity that is being forced on us for what reason? Again, to make us more passive, to make us sit down and shop more. What for? Yeah, but therefore it's the role of designers to sort for the future consumer, sort through this mess, this complexity 
and bundle meaningful experiences out of it. Because if every product talks to every product, even we consumer, we will not notice it. I have very often these experiences by myself and that then I will use it also for my work where I get stupid messages on my laptop or funny advertisement. I have yet just used Instagram, then I open Facebook or I have ordered a certain type of sunglasses and then I get bombardments of the same sunglasses or similar sunglasses. So luckily the system is still stupid enough, stupid enough <laughs> Where it needs not us. to completely yeah. understand what is my mindset. But once again, a designer always must be the mediator, the middleman between all the different interests of the stakeholders to sort this mess what's going on in or a variety of different interests and create something what is meaningful for future consumers. The other thing has to be said, that designers are not an island in a storm. They are always part of a system. Unless the system backs them up, unless there's understanding from leadership of how and what the product should be and what it's trying to achieve in a long term, not in a short term, you're just wasting time. Design is being used as a facilitator, and it's much more than that. It's just to just realize what this is. And when that is defined and driven by politics, who are here today and gone tomorrow, that's an extremely slippery slope. Before Ian and Verena took off, I just wanted to ask them a few final questions that I like to pose to all of our guests. Any pair of keys in the world you'd like, any car ever made, what would you like in your garage? I have actually a very nice car, the Mercedes-Benz Pagoda. Uh -huh. I love a lot. What I would like to have, maybe... E-type Jaguar, maybe a Jeep, Rubicon. The Jeep, the Rubicon, what it's evolved is one of the most phenomenal pieces of design. I've always wanted to do an exhibition about, I don't want to use the word perfect, attractive design. And the Jeep is one of them. It's just absolutely beautiful. And it's essential, it's simple. To me, it Honest. could be a Rolls Royce because of its, its honesty and essentiality. It just feels a little different to drive. The world is not perfect, Bill, so... Clearly. Just look at it. Just keep looking at it. No, they're, they're very, no, it's very all competent offerers. With yeah. with mm -hmm. yeah. So, Ian, you have to answer Robert's question as well. So, what, what's the pair um, of keys that you would like? How long is a piece of string? How many keys? Mm. One? Yeah. One, uh, one, one key. One for the ignition, it, one for the trunk. If it's one, so it, it's a car I want to be able to use properly, it's going to be a Porsche GT3 or. Oh, a Porsche GT3. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. I, I, Porsche GT. They still have their act together. Verena. How do people get in touch with you and Ian if they need some of your design sensibilities going forward? I have a website out there. It's my name, verenaclose.com, and there you find all the contacts. And Ian? You'll have to keep searching. <laughs> I think we'll you, find you. You can find him <laughs> you can me. run, but you can, You can run, but you can't hide. Yeah. That's great. Ian and Verena, thanks so much for joining us at uh, Cars That Matter. Talk about your time with Rolls-Royce. Design works, and to talk about the most significant automotive designs in history, some of the things that have inspired you and continue to inspire you and everyone who actually cares about automobiles. Thank you. Thank you to Ian Cameron and Verena Clouse for joining us on Cars That Matter. We'll see you next time to continue talking about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross and Bill Curtis. 
produced by Chris Porter. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Recorded at Kirkco's Malibu Podcast Studios. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Today's guests were Ian Cameron and Marina Clouse. Tune into Cars That Matter wherever you rev up your podcasts. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.